Idleman Unplugged is part of the Edify Podcast Network. I want to see your face Pass me by the crowds of people The priests who sing your praise Hello, my name is Shane Idleman, and I'm the pastor of Westside Christian Fellowship in Leona Valley, California. It is my personal heart and goal for you to see truth through a biblical perspective. I hope that you enjoy this segment of Idleman Unplugged. All right, everyone, welcome to this episode of Idleman Unplugged. I'm happy to have Pastor Sam Storms on. Uh, he's been a major uh, influence in my life early on when I was struggling through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, sound doctrine, because I knew I wanted sound doctrine, but also the power of the Spirit and uh, just trying to find that balance. And so um, Sam was a, just, just an incredible influence in my life. He didn't know it. I was just reading his books and then came across his book on uh, all millennialism. As I'm studying eschatology, uh, there are so many different views out there. So, Pastor Sam, it is incredible to have you on. Thank you for joining us. I know your time is really limited, so thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. And I want to get right into this because uh, being raised in a Calvary Chapel, you know, we're taught a certain... Uh, we're not Calvary Chapel. We're non-denominational. And I love Calvary Chapels. I love I love a lot of different denominations. But, you know, you have this the certain teaching and, and you can't really, you know, go outside of that. And then reformed, you know, they, they have a certain uh, eschological view. And then uh, whether it's vineyard, Pentecostal, um, and, and it's been made popular with, with uh, left behind and uh, the Schofield reference Bible. And, and then I just came across your book and it was like, you know what, this is very interesting. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't take strong positions on this because where great men of God are divided, <laughs> you know, who am I to say, this is exactly how it's going to pan out. But, mm-hmm. you know, you bring up a lot of interesting points and I think it's, it's okay for people to know. And I remember, um, I don't know if you remember this. When did Hank Hanegraaff invo- em- embrace that? Uh, it was like 20 years ago now, maybe, you know, or 18 years ago. Yeah. Um, it was it was quite a while back. Um, I think he wrote a book called The Apocalypse Code or something. Yes. So here's the funny thing. I was just coming back to the Lord. I was probably it was, I was probably back, you know, a good three or four years. I'm listening to, to like to every man answer a pastor's perspective. And they just could not believe it. That like Hank had just gone apostate. He's walked away from the gospel. I'm like, whoa, what did he what happened here? And that's the first time I heard about. Uh, this all millennialism, which really, I mean, as I read the church fathers, I think of many of them, Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Ignatius, a lot of them would probably be all millennials. I mean, reading their writings. And so once I read what he, what he said, I'm like, okay, that's not me. Even though I might not agree with it, I can see that it's not, it's not that far out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially if what Revelation uses over 550 Old Testament images. <clears throat> you know, and how to, how to describe things. So, um, that was kind of my first jolt into it because it's almost like you're, uh, heretical if you embrace anything outside of yeah. this, of what we were taught at our Bible colleges. So anyway, I think maybe a, just a brief explanation of all millennialism, but I do want to put up your book there so people know, uh, what I'm referencing. And it's a pretty thick, pretty thick read, but important. And so it's called a kingdom come and it's basically your position on uh, premillennialism, all millennialism, you know, the, the different views out there. Uh, and so people can obviously find that on, on Amazon. Uh, but, but yeah, basically, what is your, what's a brief explanation of this view and how you came to it 
Um, and I think that's a good spot to at least start yeah. to give people an idea what it is. Well, I'll do the second part first, how I came to it. Okay. Uh, I was raised Southern Baptist. Um, the only time we ever heard about the second coming, it was obviously the pre-trib rapture, uh, the, the hope and the prayer that we would escape tribulation and persecution. I attended Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, and I loved my time there and were grateful for my education. But as you know, Dallas is very strongly dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. And uh, it was during my years at Dallas that I began to read a little bit more broadly and once I graduated, I really dug deeply into it. And the first thing to go was the pre-trib rapture. And like you said, uh, you would have thought that I denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I mean, people yeah. were just in my church were just aghast that I had abandoned the faith as far as they were concerned. Right. Um, and then so I lived for a long time. I was, I guess, what you would call a post-tribulational premillennialist. And then through further study, came to embrace what is known as amillennialism. Now, sadly, that's not a good term, but I think it's here to stay because, yeah. you know, when we put an alpha privative in front of a word like apolitical or amoral, we're negating basically what yeah. the noun uh, refers to. And so people think, oh, so you don't believe in a millennium? I said, yeah, I do. Of course I do. It's talked about it in Revelation 20. I just believe the millennium is basically what we call the intermediate state. It's the reign and rule of Christ at the right hand of the Father, spanning the time from his first coming to his second coming. And so all those who have died in faith in Christ, have entered into the intermediate state, are sharing that reign, that co-regency, so to speak, with Jesus. And that is, in my opinion, the millennium of Revelation 20. So obviously, I don't take the 1,000 years there as being literal, like you could mark on a calendar. Uh, in fact, the number 1,000, I think every time it's used in the Bible, both Testaments, it's symbolic. It means the fullness of time or the perfect time. So, uh, you know, we've been, what, almost 2,000 years now since the first coming, and I think the millennium will continue uh, to exist in heaven, with Christ reigning and ruling over the nations uh, until his second coming. And so... I do believe in a millennium. It's just I don't believe that it's a literal 1,000 years subsequent to the second coming of Jesus on the earth. I think it is, as of now, it's been almost 2,000 years. It is the heavenly rule of Christ, and it will terminate um, at the time of his second coming. Wow, that's a, that's a lot. I've got a few questions on that. Um, it, so his second coming could be any time now, or would it things have to progress a little bit more? Uh, do you see society getting better before he comes again, like Christianized or how do they? No, I don't. Um, okay. I, you know, that's that gets into the post-millennial view. And basically the post-millennial yeah. view um, is very similar to amillennialism with one exception. The post-millennialist believes that uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit operating through better. the gospel and the local church, that there will be a progressive Christianizing of society. I don't see that in scripture. I, I always tell people, I hope they're right. I mean, yeah. who wouldn't want that? But I just don't see it taught in scripture. Um, so some post-millennialists, they say, oh, Sam, you're just a pessimistic post-millennialist. And I say, no, you're an optimistic amillennialist. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, so right. really, that's the, the principal difference between the two. And it does have practical effects, obviously. Um, whether we should 
see as a major calling of the church to seek to transform culture, government, politics, mm-hmm. entertainment, education. Is there a biblically justified expectation that that will happen before the coming of Christ? Mm-hmm. I want to see the whole of the earth transformed for Jesus. Uh, I just don't see that in the way that the post-millennialist does. So yeah. that's the difference between the two. So when, what would you be looking for in regard to his second coming? Could it be any time now or do some things have to happen? Well, that uh, a lot of that goes to um, how we read Second Thessalonians chapter 2 which is one of the most baffling chapters in the Bible, because it seems to say that um, the day of the Lord or the coming of Christ, and I do believe in a rapture, just so people know that. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, just a question of when does it occur? I think it occurs simultaneous with the second coming. That's exactly what I... We are caught up, living saints are caught up and translated to be with Christ, and then we continue with him in his descent to the earth, Mm. at which time he will destroy all his enemies at what is called Armageddon. Um, If if I'm reading 2 Thessalonians 2 correctly, it seems to say that before that can happen, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness has to be revealed. Um, And I don't think that has happened yet. Uh, So that's a major point of... uh, difference among Christians is, is this talking about a literal physical human being like you and me? If so, is he alive now? Uh, could he emerge at any time? I mean, you constantly, you know this, you, we constantly hear people on the internet saying, I, somebody just recently said Emmanuel Macron of France is oh, pos- yeah. possibly going to be the Antichrist. <laughs> I heard that, yeah. Uh, because his name is Emmanuel. He's claiming to be God with us. Like, come on. No. Maybe he is. I don't know. Uh, I just know that I'm not him. <laughs> Thank yeah. the Lord. So and, uh, the only thing that I could see possibly um, indicating that the second coming is not imminent, couldn't happen, for example, before we finish this uh, podcast, is the need for there to emerge on the scene um, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. And then, of course, we have to dis- we have to talk about what it means when it talks about a rebellion or an apostasy has to happen first. Well, I'm seeing that everywhere, as you are as well. I see, right. you know, this oh, whole deconstruction movement um, terrible is, is yeah. very much along those lines. So I live every day in hopeful expectation that I'm going to see the Lord very, very soon. I don't think I can say that it could happen at any moment, but certainly th- whatever events have to precede it could happen at any moment. And so I live in great expectation of it. Okay. Yeah, this is real helpful for me because so you can see some of Revelation still being fulfilled as far as the mark of the beast, the one world leader. It's just coming up in the future. Yes. Yeah. Um, Although, yeah, the mark of the beast, another big issue. Um, Well, that could be you can explain that from the all millennial position with Caesar Nero and the Hebrew, the Hebrew uh, letters there. Well, you know, it's interesting, the same language that's used to refer to the mark of the beast, the seal on the forehead or the or the hand, is used to refer to the sealing of God's people in Revelation yep. 7. Exactly. So I think the whole idea of this seal or this mark is symbolic, and it's referring to the allegiance of your mind and your heart. Yep. You give yourself over to this world system, which in Revelation really is what the beast is. It's this anti-kingdom um, collective forces of unbelievers who stand opposed to the work of Jesus Christ. That is the beast. 
You know, the book of Revelation never uses the word antichrist. Not once. No, it doesn't. No. And uh, so the question is, is there going to be a final personal embodiment of the beast in conjunction with the second coming? Probably so. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's much in Revelation that is yet future. I see, I see Revelation as describing in progressive parallelism uh, events from the first century all the way up to the second coming of Christ, and then it'll recapitulate, go back, describe the same events from a different point of view, go back, describe them yet again from another perspective. Mm-hmm. So, yes, um, I, I hold to a mixture on Revelation. It's both events that have already transpired, events that are taking place now, and obviously events that will take place okay. as we come closer to the second coming. And one of the scriptures that's really interesting to me is when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. So that's really where some of your position comes from too, right? That the kingdom of God is within us with the Holy Spirit. And and that's part of the that all millennial position, I believe too, right? Or did I miss, yeah. misquote yeah, it's, that? Yeah, it's the principle of the already and not yet. Uh, yeah. the, what we call inaugurated eschatology. When Jesus came, the kingdom of God broke in in a unique and powerful way. Um, and it is here present now. And, of course, it will come in its consummate expression at the time of his second coming. Now, for example, when I was at Dallas Seminary, not all the professors believed this, but several of them did. They argued that the kingdom of God was not present and was not inaugurated at the time of Christ's first coming. It's entirely associated with the second coming. I don't know. I I, I can't see that. I think there are too many texts that that speak against that. So, yeah, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is also not yet. Fulfilled, but not consummated. But not yet. And also in Jesus, you know, of course, the debated scripture on, um, you know, when you see all these things with the stones uh, uh, com- coming down, not one stone will be left upon its other. Uh, and these things will happen. And the disciples are asking him these questions. <clears throat> you know, D.A. Carson made a good point. He said, if we apply that to us 2000 years later, it's the only place in all the Gospels where now there's an audience shift. So Jesus is talking to his immediate audience, but no, he's not. Now he's talking to us 2,000 years later. So I think that's a strong case for like your position, like these things are going to happen soon. And I think isn't Amillennial anchored in the position too of Titus conquering Jerusalem 70 AD. And you see a lot of Josephus's writings that were paralleling with what happened in Revelation. And uh, is that part of it too? Um, for most amillennialists, it is. Um, okay. In other words, for people who are not familiar, you can go and read Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Luke 21, what we call the Olivet Discourse. Right. I believe that most of the Olivet Discourse is Jesus prophesying what was going to take place within the generation or within the lifetime of the very people that he was speaking to, his contemporaries. It culminated in 70 AD when Titus and Rome destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, um, killed about a million Jews, took about another 110,000 into slavery. But I also think that there's a very strong possibility, and I don't want to sound dogmatic on this because I'm not, um, but there's a very strong possibility that what Jesus described as transpiring in that period from about 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., that 40-year period, yeah. is a template or a paradigm, if you will, for what's going to happen on a global scale True. at the end of the age when he returns. So um, that's entirely possible. So the many signs that are described in the early verses of Matthew 24, earthquakes, 
you know, yeah. false messiahs, people turning on each other, their love growing cold, um, persecution. Certainly that happened in that 40-year span leading it up did, to 70 yeah. AD. But it also, in all likelihood, describes what happens throughout the whole course of church history. True, because there's all, if you read Josephus's works, I mean, the amount of earthquakes, the civil wars, uh, you know, that it, it's, it is a consistent pattern. There's not going to be a time where we're free of all these things. Exactly. Um, and so would you, so you would say Revelation, your guess was it had to be written before AD 70 or no. it could have been, it could have been after that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting debate. I see the strength of arguments. For those who argue, who say that it was written pre seventy, I can't get on board with that. I still think uh, the more widespread view that it was written probably in the early nineties, toward the end of John's life, is ac- is the most accurate. So, um, so yeah, I, I would see a a late date for the Book of Revelation, not an early okay. pre seventy date. And that's that's you actually answer one of my questions because one thing I've always had a hard time with with people thinking. Um, Let's say it was written before 70 AD to talk about Titus coming into Jerusalem. Uh, the seven, the, the seven churches at the beginning. Well, those, those seven churches, it couldn't be applying to them because they're, they're 700 miles north. So they really had no, nothing happened to them when Jerusalem was conquered in 70 AD. They're, they're 700 miles up in Asia Minor. So he's not yeah. writing to those. You know, he's not writing to those churches there in Jerusalem that you're going to go through all this suffering from Titus. Because they're they're just they're not even um, in in the picture in that in that regard. But um, I wrote down also if if you didn't have the all millennial position, um, would you do you see the rapture coming before the tribulation or the rapture coming after the tribulation? Because I see, like you said, there's it's one we're not waiting for a rapture and then we're waiting for a second coming. Um, if you were to shift your view or that you didn't have the view you had, would you be more in line with? the rapture being after the tribulation and God sparing his people through the tribulation? Yes, definitely. I definitely believe that uh, the church of Jesus Christ that constitutes the generation alive when Jesus comes back, will live on the earth, will face the persecution, the global oppression that will be orchestrated by the beast of revelation and perhaps the man of sin of second Thessalonians two. Uh, that that really angers a lot of Christians. That's yeah. I discovered that when I when I couldn't embrace the pre-trib rapture, that's what made them most angry. They thought, "Oh my, I was living in the hope and expectation I would never have to suffer for my faith." Yeah. Uh, and I and I want to say to them, "Are you kidding me? What what do you think our brothers and sisters in North Korea are going through, oh, or in Lord. Indonesia, yeah. or in Sudan, or in Russia, or in China?" Uh, to hear us Western Christians who are living uh, in fear of persecution and trusting that Jesus is going to get us out of here before it happens, that's an insult to yep. probably millions of faithful Christian men and women who've lost everything, who've been tortured, imprisoned, they've lost their, their homes, their possessions. Um, so that part just kind of gets under my skin when I, when I see that mentality in, among those uh, in the church. Now, not all people who believe in a pre-trib rapture believe in it because of that. They think they've got right. biblical texts that prove it. But right. all too many, when I push back, they say, oh, I have to believe the pre-trib rapture because I, I need to live in the expectation that 
Jesus is going to get me out of here before it gets real bad. Right. Well, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we will be on the earth. I think first Thessalonians four, Christ will descend in the clouds. We who are alive, let's just assume that we are the generation when Jesus returns. Right. We will be caught up, snatched up, raptured, translated. Um, we will join Christ in the air, and then we will continue the descent. Mm-hmm. So it's a singular event. It's a downward coming. We're raptured up. We turn around and join Christ as he descends in the second coming to defeat his enemy. So uh, they're very closely related. They happen simultaneously. I don't believe they're separated by seven years. Yeah, that, well, that will get to another question. But I, I, my main question is the people who, because when I just read the Bible, you know, I can't really, I don't see how we are out of here right when it gets challenging. It, it's like there's so many scriptures about persecution and the wrath and tribulation. But I, people, if they believe that God is pouring out his wrath, mm-hmm. you know, is that what you believe God's pouring out his wrath? Then obviously the church wouldn't be here unless he covers his people, unless he shelters his people. Yeah, I mean, let's think about it this way. Romans chapter 1, you know this verse well, 18 and 19. The wrath of God God. is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and sinfulness of men. God's wrath is being poured out all the time. And we do not experience it as wrath. Um, We can experience it as, uh, as discipline or as learning or as a refining and a purification of our faith. But just think about Israel in Egypt. Uh, when the when the ten plagues were poured out on Egypt, Israel was protected. They were covered. They did not suffer those judgments as wrath. Right. So it may it, it's going to be difficult for us not to be caught up. I mean, for example, you read in Revelation about uh, the wrath of God in the form of earthquakes or pestilence. Um, well, let's just take COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen. Class, it qualifies as one expression of what Revelation talks about, mm-hmm. pestilence throughout the earth. Yep. Well, I got COVID-19. My wife did. Now, we didn't have it bad, but probably most Christians got it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't experience it as God's judgment against us. Um, and yet many unbelievers did. That was an expression of God's judgment, his call to repentance. Look, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Repent. I think we're probably going to see multiple expressions of of pestilence and these kinds of pandemics before the coming of Christ. But Christians, although they may suffer from the effects of it, are not suffering the, the anger or the wrath of God because that was poured out on their behalf in Jesus at the cross. It's almost like, you know, Daniel had to go through the exile. Uh, Ezekiel had to go through the exile. Jeremiah had to go through the challenges of of the nation of Israel being, uh, you know, reprimanded by their enemies. So even those prophetic voices had to go through some of that. But but also, I think some of your position with all millennialism, then you. So the bull judgments, the trumpet judgments, the um, What's the other one? Seals. The seals are being broken. So those you see as things that are happening throughout church history. Yes. Whereas if if others of us are reading Revelation, we see them as things coming. That's why people are concerned. Boy, that can't happen with Christians here. I mean, there's no way that could happen with Christians here. See, I think it's above the end. I think think the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments began to be poured out at the time of the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. And they have, and you look across the the last 2000 years of human history 
and you see those kinds of judgments expressed throughout the earth. I do think that there's yet a future expression of them. So I don't mm-hmm. think they're all in the past or even in the right. present. I, when I read Revelation, it seems as if there is an ever-increasing intensity in those judgments. You remember, sometimes it says that one-fourth of this was destroyed, and then it's a third, and yeah, it's the whole it's a lot. lot. Yeah. So, yes, I do think we will see an intensification and a more widespread impact of those judgments the closer we come to the second coming. So, yes, I think they are uh, manifest throughout church history, but I do think they are yet to come in the future as well. Mm-hmm. But well, God that's is... That's a great... No, I just say that's a great point, Sam, because I was reading just, uh, I think, a couple of days ago, I'm thinking, you can take all of those, and there have been times where all of those have happened, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, from the wheat and the pestilence and the famine and the drought. I mean, maybe not to that magnitude, but you have mm-hmm. seen uh, the, the the water being turned into blood and the, the issue, you know, the, you've, you've seen things throughout, throughout history where these things have happened, just not to the large scale that you read. And that brings, makes a question like sometimes revelation is allegory. Sometimes it's literal. Sometimes it's, I can see metaphors or similes, you know, I guess it, I guess, how do you interpret it? I guess just based on the context of, of what, you know, what you're for the normal person, you know, it's, it's a little challenging. Yeah. Well, I mean, when just take for an example, you read in revelation nine about these, these creatures that, you know, have, Grasshopper, grasshopper, lion's faces, scorpion tails, whatever. Uh, Well, I think that's very clearly symbolic of demonic spirits that are going to be just unleashed in the earth that even now are. Um, So it's it's very difficult to press everything literally uh, in the book of Revelation. It is apocalyptic literature. Um, It is designed to symbol. Now, here's the important thing people need to realize. When they hear us talk about symbolism and metaphor, um, they think that we're dismissing the reality of what the revelation is talking about. We're not. Uh, yeah. No. Symbols symbolize truth. Metaphors right. are describing truth. They're just doing it in a metaphorical or symbolic way. So, um, people ask me, do you believe, uh, that the things in the book of Revelation are literal? I say, I think that the truth that the images and the symbols describe are literal but they're not portrayed in literal terms. Um, so, you know, a good example of that is um, Revelation 20, you know, the thousand years. There will be a literal perfect reign of the Lord Jesus Christ with his people. But I don't think it's designed to say it's going to happen starting here day one and, and then it's going to end exactly 1,000 years later. So um, I think virtually all of Revelation is symbolic, but it's symbolic of truth. Right. That's the thing that people need to remember. Because the devil is not going to be bound with a literal chain. Right. I mean, that would be some big one-inch steel. I mean. (laughs) And how does a physical chain uh, inhibit a spiritual being? Yeah. (laughs) So so what would you do with that one then? Because is he going to be released later? It talks about, is that more symbolic of his reign of terror here on the earth is going to be stopped at some point, but then it, it, it almost reads if it's, as if it's going to be re, it reinstated again temporarily, which is hard for me to kind of get my hand around or my head around. Sure. This is the question I'm asked probably more than any other. How oh, does wow. millennialism explain the binding of Satan? Well, when you read Revelation 20, I believe that the binding of Satan described there happened 
at the time of the first coming of Jesus, his work of the cross, resurrection, when he was ascended into heaven and all of his enemies were placed under his feet. Now, people say, wait a minute. How can you say that when we obviously see Satan very much at work throughout the world for the last 2000 years? And I say, well, look, read very closely the biblical text. Listen to what it says. It says that he was bound for a thousand years and they threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. Now, here's the purpose. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And then it says down in verse uh, seven, when the thousand years ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth to gather them for the battle, namely the battle of Armageddon. So my premillennial friends say um, Satan is bound and it's so complete and thorough and exhaustive, he can't do anything. I said, no, that's not what the text says. Mm -hmm. The text says that he's bound to prevent him from provoking or inciting a premature Armageddon, because that's precisely what he does in verse 7 when he's released. He goes to the four corners of the earth. He gathers the unbelievers to launch this one final assault against Christ and his kingdom. So Satan is very active. Obviously, we know that. Uh, Demons are very active. But one thing they cannot do is that they cannot provoke Armageddon prematurely prior to the time that God intends for it to occur when Christ returns. So the binding of Satan is very real. In a sense, we could say it's literal. Um, But you have to say, with respect to what is he bound? And Revelation 20, verse 3 and verse 7 makes it very clear. He cannot deceive the nations to gather them together for this one final assault. He can certainly do a whole lot of other things, and he is. I mean, we see so much satanic and demonic activity now. That's not at all inconsistent with Revelation 20. And you just made a great point that I kind of forgot about, but just it reminded me of it. When Jesus' death on the cross, the language that he used is pretty strong. I mean, he defeated Satan and his kingdom. Mm -hmm. There was a spiritual upheaval took place. I mean, something, you know, you got people being possessed with demons for what, millennial? And now Jesus comes on the scene and now he's an authority. Now he's rebuking. Now he's conquering sin, death in the grave. Something broke, spiritually speaking. I think Satan's dominion was not as, as powerful at that point. Because now you have spirit-filled believers filled with the Holy right. Spirit, you know, who yeah. are, could take authority over that. Too. Yeah, Luke 10. Jesus says, I've given you authority over all authority. the power of the enemy. Yeah. Um, you know, they came back, these 72 who were not apostles. They weren't pastors or elders, just average followers of Jesus. Yeah. And they said, wow, even the demons are subject to us in your subject. name. And so, so, yeah, I do believe that at the end of this present age, just before the second coming, Satan's binding will end. And he will then be allowed and given permission to orchestrate this one final assault against the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ. And that would be the battle of Armageddon. Yes. Will be the, that'll be almost where everything culminates. Like that's the final, the final battle there. Yes. Because um, I think, I think, um, at, after that battle, that inaugurates the new heavens, and the new earth, the eternal state. The premillennialist says, no, that's when the okay. earthly millennium starts. And I say, no, I think that's when the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state is brought to bear. And we will enter into that experience as described in Revelation 21 and 22. 
Okay, perfect. And then I, I sent you this question too. Uh, one of it came in in Revelation 24. It states, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Do you believe that this should be figuratively interpreted as coming to life after conversion instead of the basic English understanding as an actual resurrection of dead people who have been beheaded? Now, I think you already clarified the thousand years. Yeah, I don't think either of those views is correct. Now, let me explain why. Listen closely to the language. You just read it in Revelation 20, where it says, um, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God. Um, and listen now to what it says in Revelation chapter 6, when the fifth seal is opened. I saw the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Now, everybody of all eschatological positions believes that Revelation 6, verse 9, is describing the intermediate state. People who are martyred for their faith, who are now in heaven, and uh, they've been slain for the word of God, for the witness they bore to Jesus. I think that's the same thing that's being described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. So I believe Revelation 24 is talking about those who are martyred for their faith, and they enter into life in the intermediate state in the presence of Christ. So there is a sense in which they are resurrected, not bodily yet, right. but they are raised into newness of life in the intermediate state with Jesus. And they're described in precisely those terms in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. Well, it's funny as I was reading this, I was thinking in my mind, it's funny you said that as I'm reading, I'm thinking this could, this could be mentioning people who died a thousand years ago. Or mm -hmm. 2,000. In, any martyrs that have been Absolutely. beheaded or died. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, this one's a little long. I think I already said it to you. I don't know if I'll read the whole thing, but in Jeremiah chapter 3, people can read it, verses 14 through 18. It basically talks about, you know, return backsliding children. The Lord married you. The Lord is yours. But then it goes on to say, the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall be gathered to it in the name of the Lord to Jerusalem. And they will no more follow the dictates of their evil heart. So the question is, um, this does not sound like a description of the church. The throne of God has been and is currently in Jerusalem. What is the meaning of this passage if it's not a description of a new society assembled at the second coming? Well, I wouldn't have any objection to it describing precisely that. A new society that is developed and reigns at the time of the second coming I just believe that it, it takes place in the new heavens and the new earth, right. not on this earth, uh, the thou that, you know, this unredeemed earth that is still subject to corruption. Um, but it's interesting because I remember when I read your question, when you sent it to me, um, it's interesting. And, and this is just one text in Revelation chapter three. This is in the, the letter to the church of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, listen to what, how they are described. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So I believe the church is the temple of God. It is the place of his dwelling. Right. And I do believe the church is, in a sense, the new Jerusalem. And we will reign upon the earth, but it's the new earth, not the old earth, not the unredeemed earth. Um, so I do think that oftentimes in the Old Testament, what you have are prophetic statements that would make sense to the people of the day 
during which it was written. So taking the, the imagery, the language, the experience, the culture of the people of Israel at that time when Jeremiah wrote, he can only portray this glorious future in terms that would be meaningful and intelligible to them. Right. But I think the full ultimate fulfillment is not just in one little city over in uh, the Middle East, but the whole of the earth. The whole of the earth is going to be redeemed. The whole of the earth basically will be the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, where God's people will dwell with him forever. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, too. And the third question I was going to read, you actually already answered it about Satan being bound. Um, would all millennialism, would your view be the same as replacement theology or covenant theology? I guess I should explain that to people really quick. And I, if I mess up, let me know. But replacement theology is would see the church as replacing the nation of Israel. So God doesn't have two distinct plans. He's just he's got the, you know, many, especially Dallas Theological Seminary and Calvary Chapels would see that God has two distinct plans, one for Israel and one for the church. And honestly, as I read scripture, I mean, that's kind of what I see, but I'm not an expert in this area, of course, uh, because covenant theology is the same thing, because God, Israel broke their covenant with God. God said, if you do this, I will do this. And they broke that covenant. Therefore, the church has then replaced the nation of Israel. So when you, when you talk about uh, these things, you know, Paul talks about these, these, uh, these grafted in and different things. Now the church is really Israel. But many see the church and the Israel as two separate entities that God is working through. I don't know. Did I break that down okay without any sure. notes or anything? Yeah. Let, let, me, uh, let me explain it. First of all, I'm going to go on record, as I always do. I do not embrace replacement theology. <clears throat> I, I call it fulfillment theology. Let me explain what I mean. Replacement theology basically says that all of the promises that were given to Israel in the Old Covenant, you know, God reigning with his people on the land, um, all of the prosperity, everything that came with that agricultural, economic prosperity, victory over their enemies. Um, replacement theology, some versions of replacement theology would say, those were just spiritualized and they're experienced by the church in heaven. I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. I believe the land promises of the old covenant will come to pass literally on literal soil, <laughs> but it's the soil of the new earth, not the old unredeemed earth. So here's my understanding of what happened. Um, when Christ came in the first century, the vast majority of those in the nation Israel rejected him. We all agree on that. But there was a remnant of faithful believers, the apostles, the, you know, the 120 in the upper room. And they constituted if we, what we might call um, the kernel or the seed of the emerging church. Hmm. So it's not as if the church replaces Israel. The church is the continuation and the maturing of Israel that now includes believing Gentiles together with believing Jews. So, for example, um, in Ephesians 2, he talks about Gentiles separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. And then he says, but guess what? With the blood of Christ being shed, you who were once far off have now been brought near. And then he later says, you Gentiles, you believing Gentiles, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So... It's not that the church has replaced Israel, 
The church is simply the continuation of the believing remnant within Israel. So when people say, Sam, has the church replaced Israel? My, my response is to ask another question. Does the butterfly replace the caterpillar? (laughs) Think about it. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. The caterpillar is the early stages of the existence of, of a, creature, as it were, that will eventually emerge as a beautiful butterfly. So there is organic continuity between Israel and the church. Mm. The believing remnant that did embrace Jesus as Messiah constituted that uh, that initial core that began to emerge. And when believing Gentiles were brought in, they were grafted into the olive tree. So the church basically consists of believing Jews and believing Gentiles who together will equally inherit all the promises made to the people of God. That's not replacement theology. That's fulfillment theology. The church is the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel, not its replacement. So what do you, how do you, uh, not, I don't know what the right wording is. What do you do with, let's say, Israel then becomes the nation again? We see it's at the hot spot. Is that more of coincidence? Then that the the nation of Israel was rebirthed, which seemed like an incredible miracle, right? Yeah. Um, and so you wouldn't let's say you're you're advising our president, you wouldn't advise them in such a way to where Israel is the, the still the apple of God's eye. You know, don't do any, don't divide the land. That whole that whole concept. Mm-hmm. You don't see. Does that make sense? You don't see sure. Israel as I don't even know what the right word. Uh, not as important, but. Um, yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe not as important as dispensationalists. Sure. I understand the question. First of all, let me go on record again as saying I support the nation of Israel. Yeah. I believe I they that. have a right, according to the principles of uh, international justice, to exist as a people within the boundaries of their own land. And so I think right. that the United States should support Israel in that. Uh, they are one of our very few allies in that part of the world. But then the second question is, do they have a biblical claim to the land on which they now live? And the answer to that, I think, is no. Why? Because they're in unbelief. They don't embrace Jesus as Messiah. And all the promises of the fulfillment of the land are to believing Israel. Now, that brings us back to your first part of the question. What happened in 1948? Israel is reconstituted as a nation. How does that fit into biblical prophecy? Quite honestly, I don't know. Um, it may well be, this is my, this is my hunch, so to speak. It may well be that what is happening in Israel, what's happened for the last 50, 60 years is the prelude to a movement of the spirit among the Jewish men and women, bringing them to faith in Jesus. But when he does that, he's not going to reconstitute the nation, the theocratic Old Testament, uh, nation of Israel separate from the church. He's going to save believing Jewish men and women and graft them back into the one olive tree where together with us believing Gentiles, we will inherit all the promises of God. So um, I'm kind of excited about what happened in 48 and what's happening now. Um, But I do believe that when God moves in a saving way and turns Jewish men and women to faith in Jesus, they will become part of the church, which is that one olive tree of Revelation 11, in which there are natural branches, Jewish believers, mm-hmm. and unnatural branches, Gentile believers. Together, we inherit all the promises that have been made. Yeah. 
Okay, that that makes sense. Um, I mean, it's such a such an interesting topic, and I know, man, we're we're covering a lot of ground quicker than I thought. Well, we are. Uh, um, and then a couple other things that, that stood out. What what do you do with Ezekiel? You know, there's that big push for the rebuilding of the temple. Um, I mean, I've always had the issue I've always had is why are they bringing back the sacrificial system? Yeah, you know, well, well, it's for it's for memorial. No, that's uh, to me that's blasphemous. So mm-hmm. I, I don't see how whether there's five red heifers being grown or what. I mean, I don't I don't see the significance of a revived temple or a rebuilt temple. But yeah, you know. Well, just so you know, I'm going to prepare you because you'll probably get a lot of emails after I give an answer to this question. Yeah, I'm sure and I will. Already. You'll take the brunt of it. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> um. I have a very strong opinion about this notion of a rebuilt temple. I think if it's rebuilt, it won't be by God's order or by his design. I think it would rise up as a stench in his nostrils. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I, and here's why. Jesus is the fulfillment, the embodiment exactly. of everything that was true about the Old Testament temple. That's why in John 1, 14, it says the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. He is the temple, the place of God's glorious presence. And then the good news is, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2, he says, we are the temple of God. Uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, we are the abiding place of God's glorious presence. Mm-hmm. So to say that God would rebuild a physical structure and have sacrifices. basically denying the incarnation of Jesus. It's yeah. denying who he was and what he came to be. It's denying that the church, as Ephesians 2 says, is being built up by the Spirit into a holy temple of God. So there may be a movement. I mean, let's just hypothetically speculate. There may be a movement to destroy the Dome of the Rock there in Jerusalem and a movement of of Jewish people to rebuild a physical structure. I can't say one way or the other whether or not that will happen. If it does happen, it will be offensive to God. It is not something God would sanction. The only temple in which our great and glorious God ever will dwell again is us, his people. Jesus primarily, we as his body, are the temple of God. So to say that God would sanction the rebuilding of that temple in Jerusalem is the worst form of redemptive retrogression. It's going back into the shadows and the symbols of the old rather than living in the glory of the substance who is Christ in the present. So um, this whole idea that Christians have, that, oh, we got to do whatever we can to help facilitate the rebuilding of that temple. I just think that is so offensive to God. It's so contrary to the teaching of the New Testament. It just runs. When people say that, I just want to say, just stop and Take a couple of hours and read the book of Hebrews. If the book of Hebrews doesn't show you the absurdity of any kind of reinstitution of the Mosaic and Levitical laws, all of that was fulfilled in Christ. And and to say that somehow it's going to be um, rejuvenated, um, to me, that's just offensive to everything God has done. Well, it's been a stumbling block for me because I hear people say, I'm like, I don't see how bringing back sacrifices can be a good thing at all. That's, that's well, no. blasphemous, you know? Yeah. And so, and, the, and also, uh, when they, when they teach that, you know, in Revelation one, two, and three, God's talking, you know, that Jesus is revealing about the churches. And then in chapter four, now we're in heaven. And so they use that as a proof text for the rapture. 
I mean, I've never, I, that wouldn't even enter my mind because that's well, not, that, that's eisegesis. You know, yeah, the, not, the Revelation 4 doesn't say anything about a rapture. It's talking about a visionary experience that John had when he saw the throne of the yeah. Lamb. Um, yeah, that's a, that is an incredibly weak argument for a, a tribulation rapture. And I do want to, I don't think we have too much more to cover, but I do want to read Daniel 20, 25. I, that's why I was pulling up real quick. It's actually uh, chapter, which you know real well, Dep, chapter 29, Daniel, I'm sorry, Dep, Daniel 9. I'm just going to pick up uh, at 24. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish a transgression, to make an end of sin, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision, prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So that's basically Jesus on the cross, him coming yes. to earth. That was fulfilled at that point. Now, therefore, understand that from the going forth command to restore and rebuild the rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes. There'll be, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. I'm, that's clearly with Cyrus, correct? And Nehemiah, Ezra, rebuilding of the temple. Um, am I, am I close so far? Yes. I mean, this is a very complex passage. I, I have a whole well, chapter on it in my book, as you know. Yeah. We're going to mention the book to in a minute, but here's the part that really gets me sometimes is, and after, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Then the end of it will be with the flood. And uh, until the end of war, desolations are determined. And then verse 27, then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. Well, how does he become an antichrist? Like how, right. how does the preposition, how does the word he I don't know how you turn that into now this is an antichrist making a covenant. Yeah. I mean, that's, no, I think I, the antecedent of he there is the anointed one back up in verse 26. Would be the Jesus. antecedent of that is the anointed one, the prince, back up in verse 25. It's referring to Jesus. Yeah, that's if you just read the flow. And even yeah. the, 60, the 66 weeks, the 70 weeks of Daniel, I don't know how they can grab one of those and put it to us seven uh, 2,000 years ahead. Right. You know, the 70, it, the, it, the, it seems to flow like the weeks are flowing, but the one week now is held 2000 years in the future. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I've, I've read books. I've, I've listened to, I just can't, I just can't understand that one. I can't either. <laughs> I, okay, good. I can't understand right. that interpretation. Yeah. This gap okay. theory that there's a, there's 2000 years separating the first 69 weeks and the 70th. Uh, that just, that you have to read that into the text. It's just not there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. I just, I've just never been able to understand. And if I can't understand it, see, that's why I've waited on revelation. I'm actually going to teach, teach it coming up. I've waited 23 years because I, I, when I teach, I want to know, yeah, here's what the Bible says. Here's with rep, with all these, it's like you're putting together a big jigsaw puzzle mm -hmm. and like, you know, this could happen. This, this might happen. Uh, this is Old Testament imagery. And I just have a hard time saying, like people do, this is exactly what's going to happen when it starts to get tough. When the anti we're not going to see the Antichrist revealed, we're going to be out of here. We're going to be raptured. Like, how do they come up with all that? I mean, you, you take these different scriptures, but I, I can't say something that I don't feel in my heart is going to transpire. Yeah. It, it could, but I don't see it. I don't see how it could based on scripture. Just, just for you and anybody else who's watching this. 
they go to my website, samstorms.org, samstorms.org, under resources. Um, I taught through the book of Revelation a couple of years ago, and I fully manuscripted my sermons. So basically, you have about 45 or 50 uh, manuscripts going verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And anybody wants to make use of it, it's free of charge. Just go there. Uh, I might, he, I might grab those. <laughs> feel free, go for it. I might it. grab some of those and, and just quote, quote you. Uh, no, you don't have because, to quote me. You don't have to give me. Oh, I, I need to, Yeah, I don't, I don't plagiarize. I want to, you know, I want to. Uh, but you I understand? Wanna, I, I want to yeah. say this to you and others. My copyright principle is you have the right to copy. So okay. there you go. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, and so. Is it is it a, it's a book worth going through, right? Oh, we just yeah. have to we just have to remember that there are different views and people sure. people get really worked up. I mean, yeah, it's start- interesting. This subject we're talking about eschatology sometimes generates more heat and yes. anger and energy among Christians than any than soteriology, doctrine of salvation. You, know, you can have I know. Calvinists and Arminians going at each other. But that's nothing compared to dispensational pre-tribbers going against amillennialists. And it's, it, yeah. I don't know what it is about eschatology, but it really energizes uh, and turns up the heat in, in Christian hearts. I wish that it didn't, because I just want to say this to everybody listening. The single most important thing about this discussion is that Jesus Christ is coming back personally, physically, visibly to consummate his kingdom. Are and you ready? We can agree on that. Yeah. If that can, if that's the foundation for our unity, all of these other issues we've been talking about—they're secondary. They're not massively important. What we have to affirm is that our Lord is coming back to consummate His purposes, and that's what we look forward to. That's the blessed hope of the church. Amen. Amen. And and you know, if we're to be honest, what causes a lot of this is pride. You know, I was raised in a certain denomination. I went to a certain theological belief. This is what I've been taught all my life. How dare you challenge that? So yeah, to because me, it means, for example, yeah. you mean I've got to I've got to turn on everything my parents taught me, and that faithful yeah. pastor that I sat under for years may have been misled. Well, you know, I, I, people sat under my ministry for years, hearing a dispensational pre-trib pre-meal view, and when I shifted, I just had to come clean. I said, "Folks, I repent." I ask for your forgiveness through further study. I've come to see that this is the view of the Bible and I was wrong in teaching you that view. Um, Yeah. You just simply have to humble yourself and because we're all growing in our understanding of scripture. Um, And the key is this is a non-essential. I mean, this is where, and I don't think anybody has perfect theology on every area, right? You you disagree with MacArthur here and MacArthur with, um, R.C. Sproul, and then John Piper, this, and it's like, well, who, who's right here? We all have these different nuances in non-essentials. The essentials we have to hold to. No wiggle room at all. Yeah. The yeah. essential is that Christ is coming back. Are you ready? Yeah. yeah. That's how I, yeah. Are you ready? He's coming back. And I, my concern is, and I saw this, I saw this when I first came back to the Lord, my concern with telling people, hey, you're going to be out of here when it gets tough. What about if they're not? Could that be a great falling away? Oh, yeah. Do you have, yep. I, I, I thought I was out of here. Now, I mean, my, my, no, the my Bible whole, must not be true. <laughs> yeah, my whole faith is shaky now because right. they told me, and here's this one world leader who is, I mean, you look at cryptocurrency and you look at how they can shut down. And I mean, you can really see how a lot of this could be fulfilled here shortly on not, not buying and selling unless you bow to this 
world system. China already has it with the social credit score. I don't know how much you've been following that where, you know, on their phones, they have a social credit score up to a thousand or whatever. And the more you comply with the government, the better your social score is. Oh, wow. No, I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's, it's, you can, it's, I think the last year or two, um, it's called the China social credit score. Um, and even with cryptocurrency, what they talked about the one world organization when they met, uh, recently is how they'll be able to, um, limit how far you can spend your money, five mile radius with cryptocurrency mm. or, uh, Chase Bank or Wells Fargo. It, it, they can limit what you're spending. And that's how Trudeau shut down the truckers in Canada. He stopped a lot of their cryptocurrency and they weren't able to finance. And so I can see how the market, the market is definitely going to be you're bowing toward to this godless society. Yeah. And, and they'll, you can see there's so much hatred and vitriol right now that over Christians, I can, it's just, it's just a matter of time before. You're going to jail, you're penalized, and they, they just begin to shut down, you know. And so I think preparing people for that. I want to prepare my kids for the worst case scenario. I want to prepare my kids like Navy SEALs, hoping they don't have to go into battle. Right. If that makes sense. You <laughs> yeah, know? So it does. Anyway, Sam, man, what a blessing. You have been uh, on this program. I'm going to have a couple other views on here. Um, I'm, I'm a work in progress. I think I I agree with with a lot of what you said. I don't, I don't have issues with a lot of it. I don't think we're out of here before it gets bad. Um, I've got questions on the Ezekiel rebuilt temple. Um, but I'm also watching to see how things play out because I do think as, as the years go by, we do have more knowledge than say Martin Luther had in 1517, you know, and John Knox. And we, we can kind of see, not that we have better truth, but we can look now at a broader scope, a broader a, a realm of history, and we can kind of see how these things are unfolding a little bit, a little bit quicker sure. uh, as well. So anyway, any closing words? We're going to put your, I'm going to put your book back up there. Uh, I think I have where, where a lot of this information is at. And I just like it, Kingdom Come. I just like it because uh, the, the Old Testament imagery you used. For example, Jesus isn't coming on a, on a physical cloud. The, the Bible talks about God's judgment, the clouds of his judgment. And even when the stars fell and the sun fell, it doesn't have to be a literal falling. That was the uh, ap- 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 uh, apocalyptic. Ap- 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 yeah, my dyslexia is kicking in. But it, it's, it's, that, it's that Old Testament imagery that John is very familiar with. Sure. Or, or other writers of the Bible are, are familiar with. How do you explain... God's wrath, other than cataclysmic events that aren't necessarily going to happen, because I don't know if the stars are going to fall on the sun, and but that's describing the wrath of God coming and judging the world. Yeah, so true. So, yeah, that so imagery true. is used all through the Old Testament to refer to turmoil among nations, the, right. the bringing down of kings, the overthrow of governments. Um, so yeah, it's just it's so important that we read the Bible on its own terms rather than in the light of New York Times or the Internet or Fox News or the Drudge Report. We have to read the Bible in its own context and seek to understand it in that way. Well, that's a great point to end on because I'm, I've learned years ago that you, we, we often remove the historical context mm-hmm. and the, the applicable context to the people right then. And we say, oh, this is for me. This is for me. We, we don't forget that it was written also to help early church, the early church yeah. too. It's important. You know? It's a very simple distinction. The Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. For us. Yes. It exactly. was written to the people 
who were the initial audience for whom those texts were intended. It is written for us because its truths apply to us uh, no less so than it did to them. So that's an important distinction. Amen. Amen. If you've enjoyed this episode of Idleman Unplugged, be sure to send us your ideas and topics for future episodes of the podcast. You can send us an email at westsidechristianfellowship.org or shaneidleman.com. Thank you for listening to us today and join us again on the next episode. Thank you for listening to Eidelman Unplugged. For more information, visit us at shaneidleman.com. Again, that's shaneidleman.com. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. El Paseo Publications proudly supports the Westside Christian Fellowship Radio Network. We are committed to quality in Christian publication. Free ebooks can be found at westsidechristianfellowship.org under free ebooks. Books such as What Works for Men and What Works for Young Adults will help readers understand that the obstacles ahead are never greater than God's power to take you through. Books such as What Works When Diets Don't and Feasting and Fasting demonstrate how health can be achieved from a biblical perspective. Other free books such as Answers for a Confused Church and Desperate for More of God show the importance of fully surrendering our lives to Christ. And One Nation Above God is a must-read for anyone concerned about the direction of America. Again, free downloads of these ebooks are available at westsidechristianfellowship.org. We are happy about partnering with the Westside Christian Fellowship Radio Network.